Welcome to Lost in Twin Peaks. Today's episode covers the events in Season 3, Part 17. We're going to just focus on that first part of the finale, organized by storyline or location, and uh, lead up to the final, final episode, which we'll talk about tomorrow. The FBI in South Dakota. We're going to talk about this early scene where Gordon explains Judy, or Jowaday, to Albert and Tammy. He tells them that he's hidden something from him that many years earlier, Cooper and Major Briggs discovered uh, an entity that Jeffries was looking for. It was called Jowaday, and it was an extreme negative force. And uh, it, it is now, they referred to it as Judy. Cooper and Major Briggs had figured out what she was, what it was. They formulated a plan to, I think he says to reach Judy. That's an important point. So actually, I'm going to check. I'll be right back. Okay, so there you have it. They're trying to reach Judy. They want to be led to Judy. Uh, it's about finding her. They don't say anything about defeating or they don't say why they want to reach her. Like, it's still left very vague and ambiguous. And I love the fact that it's called an extreme negative force. I'll save most of that discussion for the Lodge Lord, but just sort of mull that over in your mind. They never call Judy, at least that I can think of, they never call her like the force of evil or something. Frost might call Jowaday an evil entity in his book, and he goes on a whole thing about how her and Beelzebub, if they come together, they'll spawn like, you know, the Antichrist, basically. I think that's his spin on it, and fortunately he presents it in the book as speculation of Tammy Preston rather than, you know, gospel necessarily. But I think Lynch is going for something more interesting here, and I think his word choice that he has his own character speak is compelling in that sense. So, of course, on a lighter note, he starts this whole conversation out, says, well, I guess it's not a lighter note because they're talking about shooting Diane, but he says, uh, you know, I couldn't shoot or couldn't do it. And Albert says, you've gone soft. And he says, not where it counts, which, of course, is a corny, you know, erection joke. But it's also, as everybody noted at the time, Lynch kind of winking at us like, Get ready, guys. I'm going to take you back into good old Lynch territory. Uh, strap in, you know. Also, Tammy's reaction to him saying he hasn't gone soft is funny. There's clearly a suggestion there that maybe her and Gordon have something going on. Gordon also reveals in this part that Ray is a paid informant. He says that, you know, he had information on Cooper and all this stuff. So there's, there's a lot of exposition going on in this scene. He gets a call about Cooper from the uh, agent's which we'll talk about uh, in the Las Vegas section and also from Bushnell. And uh, Gordon and Albert and Tammy all kind of confer and try to figure out what's going on. And they say something about the station. Diane said she was at a station. I know where she is. And they go to Twin Peaks. They go to the sheriff's station. So that's how they kind of figure out where to meet up. And then later we see them all arrive together at the sheriff's station. And just like all the these other storylines, they get subsumed into the sort of Cooper narrative. Although, of course, that's what they've been tracing throughout this whole series. That's sort of the thread they've been following. Only other thing to note about this sequence, it's the last one in that sort of cozy hotel environment. I mean, I don't know how cozy. It's got all these blinking screens around it, but I think Lynch kind of loves... It takes some kind of warm affection in those screens. They're all just doing strange things, screens within screens, moving around. Like his idea of technology is just these like odd visual patterns that are totally meaningless, but signify something nonetheless. It almost looks like it's like a solitaire game going on on the screen behind Tammy and Albert, like just these cards or screens or tabs or windows piling on on top of each other. For the Mr. C story section, we see him driving down the road. We see electricity whizzing along alongside the road there, kind of 
accompanying his journey. He enters the fireman's palace or whatever from Jack Rabbit's place. He goes, or Jack Rabbit's palace, I should say. Interesting correspondence there. He approaches the gold pool and gets sucked up into there. We'll talk about that in the spirit world section. When he's spit back out, it's at the sheriff's station instead of the Palmer house, which I think I don't know if he knew where he was going, but I don't think he expected to end up at the sheriff's station. This is a twist for him. And Andy greets him. Lucy and Truman talk to him, as I said. He sits down with Truman. He's got this awkward, he tries to smile. It just looks strange. This guy is just incapable of not giving off a weird vibe. That's just an interesting acting and directing decision for this series to make Mr. C always that fish out of water. There was a shot from... A, a preview where Cooper's driving. It's actually from part 18 where he's looking in the reflection and driving around. And, uh, you know, I've mentioned this before, I think, on an early episode where I talked about my speculation for season, for the finale and for season three in general. And when I saw that shot, I think a lot of people thought that doesn't look quite like Cooper. And of course, you know, it's, it's the Richard version of Cooper. So maybe that's true. But people thought, aha, this must be Mr. C. He cut his hair, he put on the suit, and now he's impersonating Cooper. But that never happens. He's always Mr. C. He's always this distinct character. Lynch and Frost go out of their way to make sure we will never, and nobody, even like these people who haven't seen him for 25 years are put off. Nobody will ever mistake this guy for like being the same old Cooper. Even though at the end of episode 29, no, I take that back. At the end of episode 29, he's not convincing either. He's like, I have to brush my teeth. You know, he He's very monotone and weird and off. Like, Mr. C never does a good impersonation of Cooper. That's just not in his repertoire for whatever reason. So, of course, he's shot by Lucy, and then he lies on the ground. The woodsmen come back and operate him on him and blah, 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 blah. Moving on to the story section of Las Vegas. For the Dougie threads, we just pretty much close all those out uh, with little gestures and scenes. For the office stuff with Bushnell, uh, we see Bushnell one last time giving Gordon Cooper's message passing that along to him and there's a funny moment where he says i'm his boss and gordon says that makes two of us and i'm pushing on doesn't quite know what to make of that for the assassination plot uh that's pretty much all over at this point all of the assassins have been routed but tammy gets to report on some of it so she reports all the crazy things that have happened to dougie in las vegas we get a recap to gordon and albert as she realizes that dougie is cooper and she looks up his recent activity for the Great Northern Key, this was introduced in Vegas when Jade found it in Cooper's pocket. He dropped it, and then she mails it back to Twin Peaks. Ben finds it. He gives it to Frank. And then finally in this episode, that all comes to fruition. Turns out to be really important because Cooper asks him for the key. He gives him that key, and it doesn't open his door in the hotel. It opens this strange door in like the basement of the hotel very odd like why is that what's going on here again it's like lynch this part 17 just feels like lynch and frost have kind of abandoned their attempts to make uh, twin peaks feel like like to integrate it and have some sort of realistic telling of these strange events and are just like moving straight into dream logic territory and that's where this is going now I mean, you know, you have dreams where one place is suddenly another. Here you have this, him opening this hotel room or this other room somewhere else. Is it directly below his room? Like, what's the connection? There's just some kind of intuitive understanding of what it means that's that's hard to articulate. For the Mitchums, uh, their storyline, so to speak, is over. It just has been subsumed within 
Dougie Coopers. They follow him along to Twin Peaks and they make some funny comments. You know, again, these are characters from one area of the story coming into another and we just smile and chuckle as we see these two storylines uh, intersect. Like what are these two gangster brothers doing in this small town watching this supernatural thing? And he says, you know, as one for the grandkids or something like that. It's delightful. And it's, again, a Lynch Frost signature. One saliva bubble literally had characters switching places where, like, there was some sort of explosion from, like, a satellite in outer space where everybody's identities were transposed. So you had, like, a gangster who became a timid house husband and you had, a, you had like, Chinese acrobats became cowboys and all this type of stuff, like, just these switcheroos. Uh, and so in this comparison here is just that they have these characters, they're not literally switching bodies, but they're coming into places you wouldn't expect to see them and interacting there. And the search for Dougie sub-story, subplot, that wraps up as we see uh, Headley, poor, you know, Wilson has just been chased away completely and <laughs> he's, he's off in the neighborhood having, you know, dealing with Zawaski. So we see Headley with another agent at the hospital room proudly reporting to Gordon that they found Cooper or they found Dougie, rather, but then they lost him, so they don't know where he is. And he tries to get his phone back from Bushnell after Bushnell takes it, and Bushnell doesn't want to give it back. It's just a funny last moment between these two characters who never interacted before but have this funny encounter. And I think it just reminds us that Twin Peaks Ensemble is full of all these great characters, often their little silos, who occasionally run into each other and have these funny, like, they meet at cross-purposes and have these funny moments together. And that's one of the richnesses of Twin Peaks that's consistent through seasons one, two, and three is these characters who are in one area of the narrative and then come across each other and intersect in that way. As for the Cooper is back storyline that was introduced in the previous episode, and it, I guess you could say it does appear here, but it's basically folded into the Cooper investigation storyline, which unfolds mostly in Twin Peaks. So this one was introduced in Las Vegas in part 16. Might as well bring it up here for that reason, but... We're pretty much done with it here, and it, it dovetails with something in Twin Peaks. The next story section I want to discuss is Twin Peaks. Now, throughout this series, I have been discussing the subplots, or, you know, in this case, one of the main storylines, as they're introduced. Um, you know, it, so, so in the order that they were introduced, I should say. So starting back with the pilot, if there's anything in a particular episode that goes back that far. And for much of season three, that hasn't really been the case. Uh, it's mostly dealing with new storylines, even if in some cases they evolved out of the old storylines of the original series. And there have been things like Ed and Norma and so forth that, you know, do call directly back to those original stories. In this case, though, in this episode, uh, per, you know, part 17 in particular, we really can go back all the way to the very beginning of Twin Peaks to the Laura's murder storyline, because obviously that plays into this when Cooper goes back to 89. We're going to discuss that kind of as its own thing, but I did want to make note of that here, that one of the, if not the oldest storyline in Twin Peaks is coming back here in a major way. Now, it's been sort of folded into the Cooper investigation throughout. Obviously, they've talked about Laura's murder in season three, but it's always been in that context of trying to figure out what happened to Cooper. Here, her murder as its own storyline comes back to the fore. And uh, with that also, uh, Leland as, you know, the Laura's family, the, the Palmer family storyline, that comes back into it. Um, the last time we saw him, he was kind of folded into the Red Room story and that'll happen again in part 18 but here in part 17 uh, seeing him briefly looking out the window that footage from firewalk me with a little extra added to it 
that, you know, put kind of puts that storyline on its own again. So I just wanted to mention that stuff, that stuff that was in Firewalk with me that was evolved into something else in season three and is now sort of, you know, taking its original form briefly again. The hybrid storyline of Ed and Norma, Jacoby, Doc, uh, the double R uh, that all kind of combined in part 15. Uh, this is the second episode, nothing for that. And of course, it's never going to reappear after this. Uh, it's it's over with. Uh, Drugs and Twin Peaks, that storyline that's sort of morphed into Chad in jail. It's never going to appear on its own uh, again. Nothing with Richard involving, you know, drugs. Uh, the the drugs sort of work to get certain characters where they where they needed to be. The drug trafficking, but that story, which goes way back to the early days of Twin Peaks, uh, that's gone at this point. This is the last appearance of the Ben and Beverly storyline. Very indirectly, the hum that they were following that brought them together at this point has become something very different. Combined with the key that gets Cooper to where he needs to be. Uh, apparently in like the basement of the Great Northern or something where he goes through that door. So basically an element from the Ben and Beverly storyline divorced from them is still present, but that's it. For the most part, as I said, Twin Peaks stuff has been either resolved or purposefully left open but ended in the previous episode, especially like part 15. But we still have a few threads to conclude. So for the Jerry storyline, Ben receives a call from Wyoming police saying that they found Jerry naked ranting and raving about binoculars and he's in some jail cell in wyoming and uh and then ben is gonna have to you know bail him out basically so just one more humorous little family drama for ben concluding the jerry storyline which is funny people have pointed out look at all the storylines that aren't concluded but hey they went out of their way to resolve this pressing matter of jerry uh, high in the woods you know it's almost like thumbing their nose at the idea of resolving storylines of like yeah we'll resolve one how about this one the hit and run and richard's parents storylines were folded into the jerry one in the previous episode and those are still kind of here indirectly because jerry's situation is directly tied to having witnessed Richard's death, which was facilitated by those earlier storylines. The main story here has always been the Cooper investigation, and I suppose that comes to a climax this week, although we almost see in retrospect that none of the things they investigated... Well, no, that's not true. I was going to say they don't really lead to much, but there's one key component to their investigation, which was it led them to Major Briggs's clue, which led them... Well, each thing led to something else. So first, he got the hint about the page, uh, Hawk got the hint about the page from the log lady. So he went into the bathroom and he found the page there. And then they looked at the page and it reminded them of Cooper, there being supposedly two Coopers and Glastonbury Grove. The good Dale is in the lodge. So now they're looking into Major Briggs. That ends up leading them to Betty, who gives them the message from Briggs, which leads them into the woods. And then in the woods, Andy, well, first of all, they get NATO, who is going to turn out to be Diane, and Andy gets zapped up into the fireman's realm. And he gets that vision, part of which is him guiding Lucy toward the room. And we never actually see him doing that in this episode. And uh, he couldn't, in fact, do it physically because he's down below in the jail cell confronting Chad. But it seems like when he has that vision, somehow that affects Lucy. I don't know. I, now that I'm talking about it, I can't quite put my finger on it. Uh, but if there is any thread from the rest of this investigation to this moment, it's reminding themselves that there's two Coopers. But even that, you know, Lucy is the one who shoots him, and she's never really aware of the two Coopers thing. She's not part of that investigation. So yeah, now I'm finding myself in real time as I talk about this, wondering if there is any sort of plot outcome from all of that Cooper investigation, or if it just happened 
And now this happens on top of that. Not leading from it, not in any way building off of it, but just going in that direction. I don't know. Tell me what you think. But here's what happens with the outcome of the Cooper investigation and Cooper being involved with Twin Peaks Station in this episode. First, we see Nato feeling the presence of Mr. C. She's getting agitated as we cut away to Mr. C driving towards Twin Peaks. The drunk is mimicking Nato, the bleeding drunk in the jail cell below, just sort of squawking like she squawks. And then upstairs, Lucy, Frank, and Andy all greet Mr. C. He shows up at the station. As far as they know, this is Cooper, you know, just a Cooper with the longer hair than usual, maybe a little off. There's something off about his personality, but hey, it's been 25 years. Who knows what he's been through? And then Andy has that vision of escorting Lucy towards, he has a flashback to the vision of escorting Lucy in the hallway and leaving her there as he runs away. And is that some sort of psychic push he's giving her to do what she eventually needs to do? I don't know. I'm not sure what to make of that. Lucy gets a call from the other Cooper who's driving towards Twin Peaks at this very moment in the limo with the Mitchums. And she kind of freaks out. How can this be the other Cooper? And she forwards the call to Frank, who's sitting in his office just staring at uh, the evil Cooper uncomfortably. And as he answers the phone, the evil Cooper realizes what's going on, pulls out his gun, and uh, Lucy shoots him from, like, right off screen. Uh, Andy brings Freddie, James, and Nato upstairs from, from below. They were all in the jail cell. This other Cooper is lying on the ground. The, the Cooper on the phone has told them, just leave him there. I'll be there in a minute. Don't touch him, he says, very insistent upon this. So they sit there and they stare. And uh, then a bunch of stuff happens, which we'll talk about in another part of this, because it's sort of part of another plot investigation. Hawk arrives upstairs after all of the carnage, trying to figure out what's going on. Cooper uh, arrives up there. Eventually, Bobby will arrive up there, too. Uh, but that's after the whole punching thing with Bob, uh, which is just funny in the sense, you know, why isn't Bobby there for that? Well, maybe it has something to do with the old connection of Bobby and Bob. Who knows? NATO turns into Diane after that whole thing is settled. She kisses Cooper. The clock on the wall doesn't move past 253. The number of completion adds up to 10. And uh, at that moment, Cooper goes downstairs. He enters a door in the basement of the Great Northern and leaves behind Gordon and Diane and says, I think, don't, don't, what does he say? Don't try to follow me. You know, he's going off on his own. Some things to note about, note about this before we move on to the other characters' stories within Twin Peaks. NATO is a version of a Diane that can't see or communicate, which I find fascinating because, of course, as we came to know Diane, she was just a recipient of Cooper's uh, monologues. You know, she was some off-screen presence. Some people even thought she was the tape recorder. They would just receive his, his uh, words. So now we have this... Diane, who can't speak, she can't see. It's like she is a recipient, but she's incomplete. She's not with Cooper, so she's kind of out there, lost in this world. And that's one version of what Diane looks like without Cooper, because Diane was formulated as a character entirely an addendum of Cooper. And the other version of what Diane looks like without a Cooper is uh, the, the Topa Diane that we see throughout the show where she's bitter, but she's also got a lot of strength of will, strong, forceful personality, and yet she's sort of lost and confused. Other people don't quite trust her. And uh, if NATO is connected to the Cooper, the good Dale, who came out of the lodge, Diane Tulpa is connected to the bad Cooper, who, uh, you know, came out of the lodge 25 years earlier. So each of them is tied to a version of Cooper, but sort of disrupted and, you know, their, their connection to them is disrupted. Diane, I think, honestly, is the most interesting character in the third season of Twin Peaks. 
in The Return. I think she's got the most compelling complications to look at. And just the, I love how this builds off of what the concept of Diane was in seasons one and two. I love how this character is sort of subtly born from that. People have pointed out, too, she's made up to look like the Red Room in this episode. She's got the red wig, and uh, we see her face actually superimposed over the Red Room at one point, which we'll talk about. And her nails, I think, are alternating black and white. And uh, just everything, her skirt, her shirt, you know, reflects the Red Room. But she also, somebody pointed out, I think maybe on the Diane podcast itself, she is, she's got the colors of Cooper's tape recorder as well, which was black and white and red. So that's an interesting point. She's like a walking tape recorder here. The Diane who greets Cooper in the sheriff's station is very different from the Topa we saw. She's cheerful, friendlier, and just seems like she doesn't seem as traumatized. And uh, she's sort of almost a fantastical vision of Diane, a warm, welcoming presence. That Cooper just gets all excited when he sees her there. Diane! And there's this whole concept that maybe they had some kind of relationship or romance. You know, he kisses her. And it's like, uh, I see that as a moment of Cooper reintegrating in a way. Now that he's his split has been resolved, he's getting back with Diane, who is the other half, the other side of his personality in a way. You know, Diane. Diane is fascinating because she's an independent, a very independent character with her own strong personality. And yet she also serves very much within the narrative from the earliest moments as a part of Cooper and in this series as a severed part of Cooper. So, you know, if we read this in some sort of Jungian fashion, the anima and the animus, and as Mr. C is perhaps the Cooper who has lost complete touch with his feminine side, then this is a reunion with that. But it's also a reunion strictly on from Cooper's perception and on his terms. If Diane is a function of Cooper, she's also somebody else herself and so there's something going on with that too in this episode which we'll get to when we talk more about the other side some other things to note here just i have a bunch of notes so i'll read them off andy and lucy remind me of the mulholland drive old couple just because mr c leaves the room and they're and then we cut back to them and they're still standing there and they're grinning and making these sort of goofy faces and looking at each other and it's awkward and he lingers on this moment. I think that's just a Lynchian touch, a Lynchian affectation that he likes. He likes staying with these moments until they go from becoming normal to becoming bizarre. Although they don't go quite as far as the old couple does in terms of that uncomfortable feeling. Something I wondered when Cooper's face is superimposed over the sheriff's office where is that shot from? The shot of his face. Like, if you look closely, can you see a sort of a a background texture overlaid as well. It, it seems like it's not just like cut out around his head, like there is some sort of dark background there. And I was wondering if it's the background of outside the Palmer's house, you know, like there, the, the hedges or whatever, the across the street, the lawn. It looks like maybe it could be that, that type of suburban background at night cast in shadow. I didn't study it, but that was just my first impression, which would mean that him having this moment of reflection and saying we live inside of a dream uh, is projected out from the end of part 18. And his expression does look somewhat similar. That stunned expression looks somewhat similar to the expression he has as he wonders what year it is. And Laura screams and he's staring at the house. And all of that scene, you know, as soon as he realizes he doesn't know what's going on, that sort of expression. So I'm wondering if that's the Cooper we're seeing. Others thought maybe it was him in the red room projecting out into there. I just wonder if that shot was taken from a specific set or not. I find it interesting when the superimposed head disappears because we don't see it continuously through that entire sequence. Uh, we see it most of the time, but when the red room 
appears, the face disappears for a moment where the, like that egg is floating down and Diane's face hatches out. Could that just be aesthetic? Like Lynch just wanted to focus on the Red Room for those few seconds. Is there some deeper meaning there? Is it significant that we are seeing Cooper's face except when Diane reemerges? And then his face appears again. Does that have, again, something to do with this idea of a connection between him and Diane there? When we finally see his face disappear altogether, it's when we go down below the Great Northern. That's interesting because it makes me think of Henry in Eraserhead and how we see his head floating through the frame at the beginning of the film. And then it kind of cuts or fades, I can't remember, but it goes to the planet, which suggests that the planet is... A sort of a metaphor for Henry's head like whatever's happening on the planet is somehow has to do with what's happening in his in his mind in his consciousness and that makes me think that this what we're seeing here the great northern and the key that's going to open the door and all that is some sort of barely concealed metaphor for Cooper's head what's going on in his mind you know this idea that this is some sort of metaphor for his consciousness and going inside of his, his self and unlocking some key and going deeper. Part 17 is fascinating because for most of the episode, it seems to exist on one level of reality. I mean, most of the series, I'm sorry. We always get this sense, some things about Twin Peaks are a little heightened or odd, but it's all sort of plausible or natural or down to earth in its own way. And, and as it gets along, there's some moments that get a little more heightened. I think by part 16, certainly when we see Audrey and even Cooper waking up feels a little odd. You know, it doesn't quite feel integrated with some of the stuff we've seen. I think Vegas throughout has that feel, and especially increasingly so, as Dougie kind of works his magic on the town. It feels a little more heightened and dreamlike. And then part 17, it just feels like this weird incursion of something totally dreamlike into what was a somewhat naturalistic environment. Heightened, yes, but as strange as all that traffic stuff with Bobby was, Bobby reacted in a way of like, oh, this isn't normal. And like, there's just these moments. So I guess that would be another moment in a way. Um, not to wander too far off topic, but there's just these times that increasingly feel like something sort of magical is entering onto this plane of reality. And then in part 17, that just goes all out to the point where they all just fade away. And it's like we've lost. It doesn't feel like two worlds crossing into each other and meeting up and, and joining forces. You know, this world of Cooper and, and Vegas and Mr. C and Twin Peaks, it feels like the Cooper drama saga kind of coming in and almost crushing over everything, like just wiping out the sheriff's station and the Twin Peaks stories in that world, taking it over in a way. It, it, I don't know if that's a good description or not, but what I'm trying to say is it, it feels like the dream is conquering the reality in part 17. The next subsection I have under here is Sarah, Sarah Palmer. We see the Palmer household. This is right after we've gotten that footage from the pilot. So we're getting the sense now of, okay, so Laura's not going to die. Cooper has saved her. Uh, the town is going to go on without, the, the, you know, Laura's death being there and everything like that. But then we cut to the Palmer house at night. It looks like this is back in the 2016 or whenever it takes place timeline of, uh, you know, the, there's vodka and cigarettes around the house. It doesn't look like it's like Firewalk With Me era Palmer house is what I'm saying. And we hear moaning and sort of you know, off screen and it's just a long held very ominous shot held for a long time i didn't remember it being held for this long it feels like a minute or something it might not be that long but it's definitely like way longer would to the point of uncomfortable you know way longer than you would expect it to be and then finally sarah emerges into the shot picks up laura's portrait throws some stuff to the ground and then just attacks the portrait she's hitting it with a glass bottle breaking it on there but she can't 
break the photo. It won't tear, it won't rip. Nothing is happening to it. What does that mean? What's being enacted here? This happens right before Lara's pulled away, so there's a sense where, okay, Sarah is somehow enacting some sort of spell or something, or Judy through Sarah, whereby now Lara is pulled from Cooper so that she can't go to the White Lodge or wherever they're headed. Because I don't think he's literally taking her home to the Palmer house. That would be really twisted, since that's the last place she wants to go. Uh, if that was where he was delivering her. I do think it's significant that he says the words, I'm taking you home, because it has that double meaning. I think in plot terms, he's trying probably to take her to the fireman's palace, back to the red room. But the fact that Leland's the one who told him find Lara, and that then he says, I'm bringing you home, I think that's meant to sink in a little bit. And that puts Sarah attacking this portrait and possibly reversing what Cooper's doing in a new light, where it's almost like she's rescuing Laura in a way. And I did feel like that scene was expressing a kind of a rage at the... a rage at, like, the trauma and... and at that specific photo, like, it makes me think, and, you know, it's unfortunate now we found out that smile beneath La uh, Sarah's face isn't Laura, so I can't run quite as much with this interpretation as I might have otherwise, but it feels like, it reminds me of The Secret Diary of Laura Palmer by Jennifer Lynch, where she has a passage describing Laura's hatred of the school portrait and the fact that they're making her pose in this sort of artificial way, even though she's dying inside and can't anybody see it, and it's like she's screaming beneath that portrait. And I see that as part of what Sarah's doing here is kind of rectifying that, or, or just lashing out, maybe not even like trying to fix, but just lashing out in rage and pain at the lie of this photo, and the lie which Cooper is kind of enacting with this grandiloquent uh, sort of gesture of rescuing Lara like some knight rescuing a damsel in distress and not not really understanding what her trauma means and the fact that he can't take that away from her and that that in itself is almost a form of violence especially if we consider the end of Firewalk with me where Lara as I see it you know I think a lot of this rides on reading Firewalk with me's ending in a more positive light where Lara is actually responsible for the angel that comes into the train car for Renette's release for her own denial of Bob that the ring comes in there because of her actions and that that her defiance is an actual active victory not just an acceptance of her death but a turning of the tables in a way and Cooper denies her that by taking her away even if it's for ostensibly good reasons to ease her pain which we don't even necessarily know that it is people have all these more hard-headed interpretations of why he's saving Laura oh he's saving her to save himself from going to Twin Peaks oh he's saving her to just restore this metaphysical balance of the lodges or whatever so maybe his intentions aren't even that good but whatever the case may be he's denying her something and, and Sarah lashing out I think expresses that now that said it's also worth noting that when we see what seems to be a very positive presentation of Laura back in part eight it's that portrait in the golden ball that's what is sent down to earth by the fireman and, and Dido. So that's a multifaceted meaning, at least, of that portrait there, where in that light, I think it is somewhat unambiguously positive. It's a signifier of Laura's grace, and maybe even her ascended state, if we read it backwards, even though that moment supposedly takes place before Laura's born, that it's more of a result of her triumph in life and death over Bob, that this positive energy is attained, and, and that state of grace she achieves at the end of Firewalk with me. The portrait is used to express that there. Or is it, you know? So now we have two different ways of reading that portrait and what it means, as sort of a more obvious positive way and a more subtle kind of negative way. And depending how you read it, Sarah attacking it comes off very, very differently in those two conceptions. The Roadhouse, our last sighting of the Roadhouse 
we see Julie Cruz singing on the stage. This fades in over the shot of the woods at the end of the episode as Cooper is surveying the scene for Lauren, trying to figure out where Laura went. And uh, Julie Cruz sings The World Spins, which is the song that she sings in the midst of Maddie being murdered in episode 14 by Leland, which is the moment we discover who killed Laura Palmer. A lot going on there. It's obviously just a mournful song, which fits that tone anyways, but it's also a callback to an earlier mournful, tragic moment when Cooper failed, because he failed to save Maddie, failed to identify the killer in time, and now he's failed again to save Laura. It also could signify, if we read it as returning to the original timeline, which I don't think Mark Frost... He doesn't concur with that in the final dossier. He suggests that the timeline has been permanently shifted and now Laura didn't die. She just disappeared. And I think, you know, part 18, the way it, it goes off and he, he's finding Laura somewhere else and all of this stuff. There's that suggestion that something did permanently change. But if you read it as not having changed, if you read it as she's now yanked back to the Firewalk Me timeline, she's going to die, the world spins signifies that as well because it was tied to another Leland killing another character another incarnation of Cheryl Lee it's saying you know in the Giants words it is happening again this is going to happen again Julie Cruz incidentally was not pleased with how her footage was used here and I think it seems like they dubbed the original soundtrack over and what's weird is they released an article like a week or two before this episode aired where they were interviewing I think his name is Johnny Jewell the singer from the or the guitarist from the Chromatics who wrote some of the music and he's backing her up on this in this stage scene and he says you know she did several takes and she felt like she had one more in her and then we did it and it was just beautiful it was like a whole new version of the world spins reaching new levels i got goosebumps being there but then i'm pretty sure he didn't use that version in this episode and plus he fades in halfway through the song most of it's covered by critics we only get a few seconds of her singing on the stage and she was furious she took to facebook felt betrayed, swore off like Lynch and Sabrina Sutherland forever, said they like lied to her. And then in a later interview, Sabrina Sutherland said it's it's all been worked out. But she claimed that uh, they resolved it after that. So hopefully they did, because that would be unfortunate for the long winding road, which has gone through many, you know, bumps before. Uh, but Julie Cruz and David Lynch's long-term collaboration ending on that note would be kind of sad. But it would also fit the sort of aborted, disappointed, melancholy end of this episode. It's just one more sort of meta level to that. Next up is the last appearance of the Freddy subplot as it concludes with that climactic confrontation. Uh, this is now separated from the James and Renee plot that it was uh, combined with in the previous episode. All of this stuff reminds me of that book, Prayer for Owen Meany, that book by uh, What's-His-Face, John Irving, where throughout the book, I, you know, I, I won't get specific spoilers or anything, but there's like just weird, bizarre things that happen, and then it turns out they're all building toward one single moment, like years later, where all of these little circumstances that have been building over time, these odd quirks, will you know, come into their purpose in a single moment to, like, help somebody out. And it's just this arbitrary, farcical, kind of magical components that are being placed there for use later, which is how it always is in narrative storytelling. But this, it's like an exoskeleton almost. It makes those, that mechanism of planting those seeds so obvious and so ludicrous that you just, you kind of laugh along with it. Like it's this very meta sort of self-conscious way of doing that type of storytelling. And that's the case here. Like, oh, what? He's got this strange green glove on for like no reason. And like a giant brought him into the sky and gave it to him. Like here, use this later. And then he gets to use it 
to punch Chad out. You know, it's just sort of a charming, like almost childlike way of storytelling, but sort of winking at the audience. And then there was a magical green glove and it uh, it saved the day. You know, it's it's like building those elements in that fashion. So let's get right on to Freddy then. Freddy's storyline is very much resolved here, not just with the Chad thing, but most obviously as he punches out the big spinning bob spirit globe up in the the station above this strange character brought in from nowhere from like a youtube british voice impersonations uh you know uh, comedian or whatever you want to call him that was how lynch found this guy who plays the role of freddy just on a youtube a viral youtube video where he does a bunch of accents and he's like you're my green glove man lynch supposedly came up with the green glove many years earlier somebody wrote in recently and said that Jack Nance was actually supposed to play that character in some movie. Watching this and, and thinking about how it fits in with sort of Frost storytelling, and, and I think a lot of people knowing that Frost wrote like a Fantastic Four film and was a big Marvel Comics fan, that maybe this was his like superhero take. But then it's like, no, no, this was a Lynch idea. I do wonder if Lynch came up with the premise and Frost came up with the like climax, the the use, you know, the use that it would be put to narratively, because it's very much like Lynch to come up with sort of an odd non sequitur idea, like, hey, this character has a green glove that makes his hand super strong, and he can punch people with it, but he can't take it off. It's like attached to his hand, and uh, you know, that's body horror almost to it. That that feel that does sort of feel like a Lynchian idea. What feels less like a Lynchian idea is, hey, this guy gonna have a green glove and he's going to punch out like a evil spirit that uh that comes from this other character it feels more like lynch brought him into the story and then frost was like how can we use this guy uh well i know we could i guess we could have him fight bob and what's interesting of course is lynch went along with this he co-wrote it he directed it maybe he did come up with it maybe i'm wrong about my interpretation of it i noticed at the time people particularly people who were not that big fans of frost almost kind of blamed him for this you know like oh that just felt like the most mark frost thing ever like let's punch out evil or something which i think is somewhat ungenerous and and somewhat unfair to the fact that i think both of them know how ridiculous <laughs> this conceit is and are just kind of having fun with it i mean you know these are the guys who wrote one saliva bubble and on the air you know for god's sake i don't think they always take their work that seriously i think they take a lot of things in twin peaks seriously but it's certainly worth noting this isn't even the climax of the episode it's like a halfway point and then the real climax which was also something that supposedly frost was really invested in that comes later in this moment this is the grand resolution to the the idea that there were two coopers out in the world and to me it sort of signals maybe for lynch and frost this was this this concept like the the idea of having two coopers is compelling to them but this conflict this idea of like a crisis between them maybe even though it was the narrative hook into the series maybe it wasn't really the most important thing to them i don't know we'll talk about that perhaps in the lodge lore section as we move along james and renee never reappear that's yet another story thread that got us where we needed to be for the climax but doesn't get really any resolution on its own becky and gersten and steven the fat trout trailer park all these story threads that came together in part 15 that was the last we're going to see of any of that so nothing nothing reappearing there either uh we we don't get a real resolution with that just open-ended eerie question of 
you know, was Becky killed? Stephen certainly seems to be dead. What's going to happen to Gersten and so forth? This is the last appearance of the Frank's family life storyline, uh, not involving his wife in this case, but involving his brother Harry. Cooper does bring it up, has, you know, uh, how's Harry? Or, hey, Harry, how are you doing? And he says, oh, this isn't Harry, you know, when they're on the phone. And then when he pops in, he says something like, give my regards to Harry. And Frank says, I will. So this, in the end, really didn't... You know, I guess uh, combined with the information about the son and the wife, it kind of paints an overall portrait of Frank's life, but it's not a storyline with like a beginning, middle, and end. It's just an open-ended situation. Audrey and Charlie are gone. We saw them for the last time, part 16, never going to reappear. So yet again, something we're left to figure out for ourselves. Another storyline dealt with in this episode in a way that does intersect more directly with the Big Cooper stuff is Chad in jail. We have the drunk in the cell waking up. We see Chad, he's in cell number 10, which is, I don't know if that has any meaning, number of completion once again, but he's waiting for his moment as the drunk is falling asleep against the bars and everyone's staring at Nato who's shrieking. He uses that excuse to retrieve a hidden key from the sole of his boot. Nice little uh, deus ex machina there, I guess, or whatever you want to call it. He escapes, and then he gets a gun from the stock room, and he pulls it on Andy and is going to shoot him and yelling at him, and he's knocked out. Uh, And he's knocked out by Freddy. This, to me, feels the most like something sort of frosty, and it feels like something out of a sort of a Hill Street Blues episode, or really any, any TV series where you sort of have multiple threads going on at once and kind of building to an exciting climax together. And uh, that's the purpose of the Chad thing. It, it doesn't tie into anything larger. It just gives us a little sub-story within the larger story that can give us some character moments and this and that. And then it's resolved here in a sort of a somewhat dramatically conventional way, but also giving Freddy an excuse to sort of exercise his glove so he's there at the right time. As for storylines that are returning from the original series... Uh, I I already mentioned like Laura's murder and the Palmer family, but they have been present throughout season three and in other forms embedded in other storylines. Something that's totally new that hasn't been or totally resumed, I should say, that hasn't been brought up at all in season three is Lauren James. That's back after a 16 entry absence. Obviously, you know, we do get James singing only you and I or just you and I rather which ties into his uh, old romance with Laura. Even that's a little indirect because that was actually Maddie and Donna in uh, season two that he was singing that to. And his sort of lovelorn situation, his morose station in life, all of that, it does relate to Laura indirectly, but there's never any mention of them being a couple, uh, unlike with Bobby and Laura, where at least he cries when he sees the photo and so forth. So this episode where we go back to the footage from Firewalk with me and we have him giving her the ride on the motorcycle, taking her out to the woods, talking to her. This is an actual return of the storyline with technically some new material because uh, we do see them riding on the motorcycle in a shot that was uh, new or not new, but that had not been used in either Firewalk with me or the missing pieces. Um, So not just completely a repeat of Firewalk with me, but for the most part it is. Another storyline that's back after 16 entries. In both of these cases, these storylines are back for the first time since um, Firewalk With Me and the Missing Pieces is Bobby Killed a Guy. This thing that was brought up way back in the pilot where, you know, James says this to Donna. She's like, what? And then in Firewalk With Me, we actually see it happen. And we see Laura tell James about it. But also we see, uh, you know, Bobby shooting the, uh, the deputy from Deer Meadow, trying to bury him. 
So since the footage of the James and Laura conversation is reused and recontextualized, restylized in this uh, episode in part uh, 17, we do get the mention again of that line, you know, Bobby killed a guy. What are you talking about? And all that. And it's funny in the context of this season, since it's never been mentioned and Bobby is now himself a cop. Um, interesting that she never said Bobby killed the cop. You know, I, I wonder if James thinks of this sometimes, like when he's arrested by Bobby and put in the jail, for example, of like, you know, why am I behind bars here? You, you, you killed someone supposedly, but, um, you know, so that's an interesting element to have brought up again, uh, in this context. Uh, it's there because they basically include all of the dialogue. I don't think there's sort of any import beyond that. But still interesting nonetheless. Here's a new section for Twin Peaks. Something we definitely haven't dealt with before. And I don't think anybody expected. Not quite true, actually. People did predict this. I actually just listened to an interview with uh, Cameron Cloutier that I did back in uh, 2016. Where he says, maybe Cooper will go back and save Laura. So yeah, so sorry, I got ahead of myself there. The next story section is Laura Palmer in 1989. We return to literally the scene of the crime. And this is in Twin Peaks, but it's in a very different Twin Peaks than we've been watching all season because we're rewinding 25 years or based on the dates I have, 27, but who's counting? So what we see is uh, the Palmer house. We see Laura race out, jump on the back of James's bike. Leland is looking out the window and scowling. And uh, then we see her off in the woods. Cooper is watching her as she talks to James, and this is dwelt on for a while. We get quite a bit of that scene from Firewalk With Me, except it's in black and white. The The music has been removed. It's like he clearly went back to the original footage and uh, cut it from that original negative, like without the soundtrack on it or anything, just the audio that was captured live, the sound, that, the sound of the dialogue and, you know, some sound design of, like, the woods at night, that type of thing, but but no music. It's a much more spare version of it, and a little bit more, like, it's still captivating and powerful because Shirley's performance is so amazing, but it feels more distanced. It feels a little more emotionally removed. You know, we're, we're beholding this. We're not as, like, inside of the moment as we are in Firewalk with Me, both because of the different aesthetic decisions, but also just narratively you know there's a famous quote from an editor saying if you want to change what's in a scene or you know if you want to change the effect of a scene don't like recut the scene cut what comes right before it like change that and that will change the audience's perception going into that scene and that's as i think that was uh what was her name? She was one of the great editors of all time. She edited Bonnie and Clyde. Dee Dee Allen. I think she's the one who said that. So that's certainly true here. We're not watching all of Firewalk with me and entering the scene. We've just watched some crazy Twin Peaks lore stuff and uh, this sort of perplexing thing and all from Cooper's point of view. And now we're watching the scene also from his point of view with cutaways to him as our sort of surrogate. So that very much changes, even though he's using the exact same footage here. It makes me wonder what other films have used this conceit, taking footage that we've already seen and presenting it again, but in a new way, cut differently, composed somewhat differently in terms of, you know, soundtrack and uh, how it's colored and everything like that, and represented as the same footage from a different point of view. You know, we have things like Rashomon where they show us the same event from different points of view. Maybe they even change the narrative, but something where it's literally the same exact footage. You know, it's almost like the Kuleshov experiment in uh, the Soviet Union, where they were experimenting with montage 
and they they had this idea of like cutting a guy's reaction, the same exact reaction, and cutting it with different things, like say a kitten, I can't remember the exact name, food, or somebody dying, and cutting back and forth to his face, and how the viewer would read into his expression totally changed. Even though it was the exact same shot, it would totally change based on what footage was intercut with his expression. This is a famous experiment from like a hundred years ago. So I guess that's kind of what I'm thinking of, but I'm wondering if there's like a narrative film that has done that and actually used that with a narrative footage. And I, even if there is, I don't think it could be anything on this level of something that was already iconic and known, at least for the audience watching Twin Peaks, you know, from decades ago. And now we're revisiting it from a different point of view. It's just, it's sort of a feat of aesthetic and conceptual brilliance I really love. And it's interesting because Peyton has credited this idea to Frost, that he knows Frost was always interested in the idea of Cooper trying to go back and save Laura, and that this was sort of an act of hubris and a mistake to do. It's obviously something that in a way resonates with Lynch as well. There's a line cut from an early draft of Firewalk With Me where Laura... Uh, you know, some of this requires too much explaining, but Cooper's in her bed and she says, I think, why didn't you save me in time or something like that? So, you know, that was written without Frost. And that's obviously something that was on Lynch's mind too. But if this is a Frost idea, it's interesting that he would write this and then Lynch would take his own material and squeeze it into this view. I think throughout a lot of this series, there's sort of these surrogate moments where some character almost feels like a surrogate for Frost making his way into the Firewalk With Me material. I felt that way about uh, Tammy back in the part 12 where she's initiated into the Blue Rose task force. It feels like Frost being kind of brought into the mythology and putting his stamp on it, um, both as the character of Tammy and also just writing Albert's dialogue and giving the Blue Rose an explicit meaning. But I think in part 17, Cooper feels like Frost's surrogate in this world. And that's why it's so interesting that Lynch directs this episode because he almost seems to occupy two positions at once. A position that is following Cooper and giving us this world through his eyes, but also the other part, the part that made Firewalk with me, that knows the other side of this story, that knows the Lara point of view and in some ways maybe is even almost more invested in that, but is now taking a step back and showing us that, that perspective from the other side and sort of has a foot in both worlds. And I think we as viewers to a certain extent, certainly if we've seen Firewalk and we have a foot in both worlds because we have experienced all of these events through Laura's eyes and now we're seeing it through Cooper's, but we know something's missing. We know he's not seeing the full picture somehow. And it's fascinating to be in both of those positions at once. It actually makes me think a little, and this is also something that sort of uses a masculine feminine divide, but Sofia Coppola's work in The Virgin Suicides, where she's telling the story based on a male novelist's story from the point of view of like the teenage boys. And to them, the, the girls are these mysterious, strange beings they can't quite understand. Yet, of course, Sofia Coppola is a woman. She identifies with these characters through many of her films. And so we have this impression of like an auteur occupying two positions at once, one which they're presenting us at face value and the other which in a way they're almost keeping to themselves but sharing with us in more subtle, almost like subconscious ways. And so to go off on a long digression, it feels like that's sort of what's happening here with Lynch representing and recontextualizing his own footage. So anyways, Laura runs off into the woods. We see Jacques, Leo, and Renette waiting for her. She never shows up. There's actually some footage from the missing pieces. I think there's like four shots or something like that that are additional shots that we didn't see in Firewalk with Me or the missing pieces. So 
even though Sabrina Sutherland and others said, no, everything that was that could be in the missing pieces was, there's at least a few seconds of material that is only in the return. Another example, Leland following the bicycle with his, the motorcycle with his eyes glancing off screen. That's something that we don't see in uh, Firewalk With Me. It's like a few additional seconds of very unnerving material. With Laura out in the woods, she stops, she's crying on like a stump, as presumably she, she did off screen in Firewalk With Me. You know, this is all sort of, this part at least is concurrent with what we saw in the film. And then Cooper intervenes, he interferes, he comes in, she sees him. He's just mostly kind of silent, kind of this strange alien figure. And she says, who are you? Oh, you're the man I saw in my dreams. And he takes her hand and they walk off into the woods and the screen turns to color, interestingly enough, which could have something to do with people's idea that when in Andy's vision, the black and white stuff was stuff that couldn't be changed and the stuff that's color could be changed. I don't know. John Thorne thinks that this is them stepping into the present somehow, that, that when it turns to color, that we're seeing present events. I think there's also an aesthetic component to it. Lynch knew he wanted to use the footage from the pilot again, which we do see um, along with one additional shot of Pete fishing, uh, you know, with another actor obviously subbing in for Jack Nance. Nice little farewell for that character. We see footage of Catherine reading the newspaper, Josie putting on her makeup, everything we see at the beginning of the pilot, except now Laura has been digitally removed from that footage. So we see the log in the background and she's not under it wrapped in plastic. And so Pete can just carry on and go fishing. It doesn't have to stop and unwrap her body or anything. So the fact that he was gonna use this footage and he knew it would look right in color, uh, although it has been corrected to a little bit of a different look. And of course it's been uh, cropped to fit like a widescreen. I think he wanted to leave it in color. So I think fading up to color as they walk off into the woods, makes a nicer transition into that than just cutting from black and white to that. But he, but he did want to have it black and white up to that point, you know, aesthetically, like to present it from that different point of view. So that's another component to think about there, uh, along with the other reasons. I've talked before about how in Vegas, Cooper was like E.T. wandering around, this alien being wandering around a suburban house, taking delight in all these little things like coffee or putting his tie on his head because he doesn't know how to dress, and the little kid guiding him around and the mother with her back turned. He's like E.T. in this sequence, too, because this figure out in the woods watching from behind the ferns feels very E.T. I don't know if that's intentional at all. I kind of doubt it is. But it does feel like E.T. is this odd touchstone specifically for Cooper throughout this series. And again, him saying goodbye to the wife and son in the previous episode, too. You know, there's just this constant motif there. And he feels like an alien. To be dressed in a suit in the woods is just such an odd idiosyncrasy. Like, it doesn't look like he belongs there at all. Graphically, it's a very great way to show this character intervening into the past, intervening into a place he doesn't belong because he physically doesn't look like he belongs there. But also having the suit on, it makes him this symbol of archetypal, almost 1950s masculinity, basically. Like this different vision of the patriarchal. Like if Leland is this dark, twisted version of patriarchy, here Cooper is as the idealized patriarchy coming out to chivalrously take the girl's hand and lead her home and rescue her, you know, and take her back into the domestic sphere. And there's something eerie going on there because there's a few places in these episodes where Cooper and Leland 
are connected in that way. People have speculated, is there some connection? I don't think that essay about Cooper being the killer ever goes in that direction. Like I think they think he killed sort of someone else in the Leland Lara drama is his dream version of that relationship or whatever. But there is that interesting idea that like Leland and Cooper are somehow connected. They certainly are opposite sides of this coin, of this idea of patriarchy, basically. That is what it's working with quite explicitly. I mean, this father figure and then society's version of the father figure, especially now that Cooper is, you know, a little older. It's like he's not just a young man out there rescuing somebody, almost kingly figure coming out of the woodwork to do this. So he leads Laura off into the woods. Eventually we see, we hear those noises that we heard at the beginning of part one, the sort of the you know, the, the almost cricket noises that were on the record player. And uh, the fireman said to Cooper, listen to the sounds. We hear those noises again. And the camera does some interesting moves back and forth, moving away from Lara. And the way he's pulling her through the woods is odd. It's like she's not quite, she's almost like mesmerized. Like she's going with him, but she's also kind of hanging back a little bit. Like he's almost dragging her. It's an odd sort of look. Significantly, we don't see her whisked away like we did in part two in the Red Room. We hear, well, first we see his hand empty. She's not there. He looks around and we hear the scream. And that's that. We don't see her pulled away. We might deduce that's what's happening, but there's also a thought of like, Maybe she just ran away, and the sound of her screaming is a sort of a flash forward to the fact that now that she's run away, she is, she's back on track to die. I liked that version of events more the first time I saw it because it felt like she was returning to the storyline of Fire Walk With Me. Now, given what we see in Part 18, how most people interpret that, there's an idea of like, oh, no, 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 she was pulled out into a different timeline. And of course, you know, since we're seeing Pete walk by without the body, we know. But I thought it was interesting, the scene with her, you know, body disappearing, that all happens before she actually is pulled away from Cooper. So was it a possibility that was foreclosed or are we just getting a flash forward of what's going to happen now that she's been pulled away by Cooper? Like they're set onto that trajectory, I, I don't know. And of course, there's the significance of Sarah smat attacking the portrait. That's it for this episode. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can support this work on patreon.com slash lostinthemovies. Tomorrow's episode will cover the events in, you guessed it, Season 3, Part 18, the second part of the finale. So see you then. Mm-hmm.